You're listening to Why Try, the podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Peel, and each week you'll hear from artists, entrepreneurs, and others who have found that betting on themselves has made all the difference. This episode, I got to hear from Rachel Shaning, who, together with her husband Miles, created Fat Milo's Family Kitchen. She is an awesome example of someone who jumps in and isn't afraid of figuring things out on the fly. Talk a little bit about this in the podcast and how she and her husband actually have complementary traits when it comes to the business. She's very much the driver of new growth and taking risks, whereas he is a very skilled person operationally at putting these things together to make everything run smoothly. It might sound like an odd combination, but from doing this podcast, it increasingly seems to me entrepreneurs need both to be successful. Rachel also has a lot of good thoughts when it comes to interactions between her business and the community. And as if that still weren't enough, Rachel has some great insights on business relationships too. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. So this is Fat Milo's Family Kitchen. It's an American diner is the way we describe it. And when people ask what kind of food we have, I usually say uh, it's the food that either your grandma made or you wish she did, but with the best ingredients you could find. So we make all the things you would find in a standard American roadside diner. We just try really hard to use local ingredients, no high fructose corn syrup, um, organic, fresh, grass-fed, all of that fun stuff. And we've had this restaurant for, we celebrated our seven-year anniversary in January. Um, So this is the eighth year. At this point, we are still improving and changing. We would think that we could maybe rest on our laurels a little bit now. We've changed a lot and still do a lot all the time. Can you tell me a little bit about how you decided to start the restaurant? So I worked, always worked restaurants as my second job or when I was real young as a first job, um, but always front of the house. So as a server, cocktail waitress, busser, hostess. When my husband and I decided to move to Oregon from California about 15 years ago, he we moved here and I was working in corporate childcare, which I'd worked in for years. Um, it's actually my first um, college degree is in early childhood education. So we moved here and I was working in early childhood and he was working at a restaurant named Wildwood, which most Oregonians and local Portlanders would know as one of the first restaurants to sort of use local cuisine and, um, you know, fresh and natural. It's not an organic restaurant. It wasn't. Uh, He was working there with Corey Schreiber as a bar manager uh, and bartender. And he loved it. It was great. And I was working in the nonprofit world, and I changed to a, another position from the Salvation Army and uh, went. And then cancer that I'd had, that I had been diagnosed with as a younger person, I should say, as a 20-year-old, uh, 25-year-old, um, came back. And it's, it had never left, but it kind of, how do you say, it got worse, uh, escalated. And so it was beginning to seem like I wasn't, maybe wasn't able to keep the job that I was in. What about if you from keeping your job at that point? At that point, I had moved up in the Salvation Army from working with youth and children, uh, babies and young women who, um, uh, teens who were pregnant. Um, and, and I was working, I had moved up and worked into the public relations part of the Salvation Army here in um, the Cascade Division. And I, you know, it required me to be out a lot in my feet. It required me to speak in public and uh, run events and sort of be the public face. I had to, you know, do radio interviews, TV interviews, those sorts of things, and really back up our development department to raise funds to take care of people. And the hours uh, and treatment were just not, um, I couldn't do it anymore. I I developed a little bit of a stutter. I was having trouble 
sort of making my thoughts into words again, and um, it was pretty obvious I wasn't going to keep up, be able to keep up with the job. So um, we were in a fortunate position in that I could probably take some time off. So I did that and was off for about a year and then uh, went back to work and I started working for the Oregon Historical Society. Meanwhile, my husband, Miles, is still working at Wildwood and doing great and loving it and making a lot of local connections and in the food industry. And when I worked at the Oregon Historical Society, we discovered uh, through, well, anyway, we discovered that I had a brain tumor. So um, I was able to work for a little while, but kind of the same thing happened. It seemed like we were going to have to ramp up treatment. We had a lot of questions, a lot of questions, and we're really unsure what we were going to do or how we would handle it. I was able to take some time off. They treated me great there, and, but I was in the same kind of position there. And, um, you know, a lot of hours talking to the public. Um, and it wasn't fair to my coworkers or colleagues to stay. So um, same, took some time off. And um, during that time, realized that we would need to find something that was maybe self-sufficient. It was sort of like I had this expiration date, but we didn't know when it was going to be. And there was sort of a timeline on me all of a sudden, which was a little bit rough. And um, we... Was it because it's like a terminal diagnosis? It is. I mean, it was. Yeah, it is, I should say. I mean, I have stage four cervical cancer. And also I have a brain tumor, which is not cervical cancer. So it's not what they call metastatic brain tumor. It's its own. Um, And, you know, it was really at that time the doctors were really kind of unsure. I responded to treatment well, but in 20 years I hadn't gone into remission. So anyway, you know, it sort of became like, we got to do something that maybe doesn't rely so much on just me and could maybe be a family business that Miles and I could do together. Uh, we shopped around a little bit, did the usual kind of Craigslist ad looking, and we saw this place for sale. Yeah. And we came and looked at it, and it's a pretty rough joint. I mean, it's not a brand new, you know, strip mall space. Well, it, it has to feel a total diner feel. It which, does. Which is kind of a yeah. strength, actually. Yeah. And, you know, we knew right away that it was it was what we wanted. At least I did. I think I probably had to convince Miles, but that's how our relationship works anyway. Uh-huh. It's usually me that's ready to jump off the cliff and he that's behind me with a parachute and food. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> and whatever he needs to clean up the mess. So, um, when we, you know, we saw this place, I knew that I loved it. And, you know, it took some convincing our kids. We have four kids. They were all pretty young at the time. And, yeah. like, um, roughly what age was before they? Well, so 10 years ago... I'm sorry, seven years ago, Michael is our youngest. He would have been seven. Uh, Jacob would have been 14. And Ashley and Amanda would have been roughly 17 and 18. Okay. So, uh, of course, the, the three the two, the two, three oldest kids came and worked here. Right. Um, anyway, we bought the place and we made it work. And it's been hard, really hard. Okay. Yeah. I, I will never tell anybody that it was a walk in the park because it's not. Right. Well, that was my... Um, that was like my first thought when you were telling me this, like, well, like, I had this like health situation where I couldn't do my normal job. Uh-huh. So I went for the comparatively easy job of starting uh, like a restaurant, <laughs> like, like one of the hardest of all businesses. Sure. Like the most time consuming and the most sure. labor intensive. Yeah. And I mean, it's just a really hard thing to pull off, but you've done great, it sounds like. Yeah. I mean, don't forget that I was never a cook in a commercial kitchen before we bought this place and so there are some funny pretty funny stories of you know tickets coming back for an omelet and I wasn't good at making omelets on the flat top here and so I would literally have to I would have to go find Miles and say can you make this omelet I mean it was it was hilarious I mean we have a cook here named Gerardo who's been with us since the beginning 
Um, he was here when we bought the place, and he stayed with us, thankfully. And I always say Gerardo taught me to be a line cook. And then I, in turn, taught Gerardo how to work with better ingredients, and we both sort of stepped up our game together. And so it's been kind of it's been a lot of fun. Um, so when he bought this, when we bought this place, he wasn't making any sauces from scratch. We weren't they weren't doing anything of that here, which is fine, but it's not what I wanted to do. So you know, I think having the quiet downtime was good. You know, we learned how to make our own ranch dressing and the fun stuff. But yeah, no, we did. Back to what your point, I don't. We never thought this was going to be an easier job. I think that what we thought was, I, I think there was a little bit of, let's do something we've always wanted to do. Let's do something we know we can do well and that we understand and that maybe can live longer than I do. Um, and that's dark. It sounds dark, but it seemed safest. Like we had created our own safety net, you know, because I'm young-ish. And um, it's kind of late in the game to try to figure out a way to maintain our my life and, and our lifestyle and our kids with only one of us working, especially since Miles was in the restaurant industry, which is not well known for, you know, high salary and great benefit. My impression is that for a lot of entrepreneurs, losing health insurance is a deterrent to doing something like this. So how did you guys handle that? Well, understand that um, I wasn't going to be able to maintain you know, a regular corporate position anyway. And, right. and my Cobra insurance was running out. And oh. I had also hit maximums. When people talk about lifetime maximums for insurance, I've hit lifetime maximums three times over my lifetime. So um, I understand what that is very acutely. And that being said, you know, being without health insurance, of course, is, it was a huge decision. So what happens next is that I mess up the first interview with Rachel by running out of space on my recorder's memory card after about minute eight. After I fixed that problem, we got another 40 minutes of material, which we're about to start. And then after that, she was still gracious enough to have me back a second time to go over some of the material I had lost. Thanks so much to her for making this episode everything it could be. And I definitely learned a couple lessons. One, uh, to always approach an interview with an empty memory card. And two, that if you're upfront with people, they are pretty understanding. Stuff goes wrong, especially in the world of business, and uh, for the most part, people get that. Like, you should always do the best you can, and sometimes that'll work, but on the occasions when it doesn't, you're gonna need to rely on the patience and kindness of others. I definitely don't plan on making this mistake again, and I'm just thankful that I didn't ruin the interview, which is thanks entirely to the fact that Rachel's just a really nice person. No, I'm totally not. I don't get no, mad about that. I know, I know. You're just mad at yourself. I'm, just let it go. I'm getting no negative vibes from you. <laughs> just let it go. If you don't make mistakes, it's never going to be good. <laughs> it's a healthy attitude. <laughs> Take it for someone who's made a lot of mistakes. What's it been like working with your husband? It's been, I mean, because oh, like yeah. everyone yeah. can work with their spouse. No, 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 I don't think everyone can. Um, it's been great, actually. As it makes me tear. I get to tear up a little bit because I, um, I'm very lucky. I mean, we're very lucky. It's a second marriage for me. Um, we've been married for a little over 15 years. So if we've had this place for almost eight, you know, yeah. it's a lot of our marriage having this place together. Um, we try really hard not to fight over this place. We don't really fight anyway. It's great. I mean, we spend a lot of time together. We spend a lot of time together. Well, that's really what I'm... Yeah. And um, even still, you know, I just... Yesterday, we spent all day out, which we hadn't done in a long time, and together. And it was, you know, I 
we'll still do date nights. We'll still like, you know, go out on the town and, you know, get some dinner or try to make time for each other that's not here. We don't count being here as being together as husband and wife so much. Right. Um, we definitely have different views on things. Is that with regard to running the restaurant? Uh, yeah. Um, not in, like just literally just different views. He can, he sees things that I don't see and I see things he doesn't see. Okay. We operate and communicate totally differently. Um, so I guess you could see it as, you know, people always say you need balance. I don't necessarily know that it's about balance more than it's about understanding we're both working towards the same thing. Um, and there's not a lot of ego wrapped up for either of us. So it's okay for us to, one of us to be wrong and one of us to be right. It's not really that big of a deal. And, um, I'm usually wrong <laughs> and he's usually doing a great job of not pointing it out, but it's good. It's great. I mean, it's, you know, it's you know, it makes for some funny conversations in our downtime. You know, we're making the bed together in the morning and we're talking about, you know, in one sentence we're talking about, you know, our youngest son and who's doing what with him. And then the next sentence it's, you know, what are we going to do for the host position on Saturday? Right. You know, it's different, but it's good. Do you try to partition work and home at all? Not really. I think we talk about it sometimes like it's something we should do. We've created a, a space, an office space, since we've opened the catering business more, it's sort of like a second company. We've created an office space to work in. Um, I'm always working. I'm always, you know, looking at my phone or doing social media or texting about eggs from a farmer. Or, um, and uh, we talk about compartmentalizing, but it's not going to work. And I feel like that might create more resentment. You know, if it's like, I really need to talk about this thing at work, but I can't because we're at home and I'm supposed to respect this time. Right. Um, I, we don't really want that either. It's kind of a free flow conversation of this place. Sure. Um, there are definitely times where we'll say, I don't really want to do that because that's work. You know, like where we're choosing to go out for breakfast, we'll oftentimes not choose a place like ours. Okay. Because, um, you know, I'm busy looking at their menu or trying to see what they're doing on their line or, you right. know, watching their cooks, or their server. You know, and so we'll say, we don't want to go, that's too much work. Yeah, because we still absolutely love to eat out all the time. He might have a different answer. So I don't want to think, I don't want to answer for him about what it's like to be married and work together. But How about your roles within the restaurant? Do you separate out things that he's more focused on versus things that you're more focused on? It, it, honestly, it's probably one of the things we could do better. The more staff we've brought on, the more we've tried to compartmentalize that part or make the lines a little clearer. I think probably the staff knows better who to go to for what. I mean, in theory, the food in the back of the house is mine and the beverages and the front of the house is his. Okay. Uh, he's also our maintenance man. He's also, you know, the person who holds me up. And I think I probably hold him up a lot less than he does me. I think I'm probably more the face and the voice of the place, but he's, you know, the, the you know, he's the easel to my art. So it's sort of like, you know, without him, I can't show anybody anything, you know, so, um, but he can do every job here. Uh, he can work on the line and he has had to. Um, he can do what I do back there and he can do everything up, you know, in the front. And I don't know I could that I could say that about myself. And I think people would be surprised to hear that. Because um, I think a lot of people think I'm sort of the powerhouse. I think maybe I'm just the loudest. <laughs> well, you definitely bring the entrepreneurial spirit. I might be the driving force. But there are definitely times when I just... We established early on that I'll complain or vent or be super stressed or super overwhelmed and like really ready to go underground. And in the beginning, he really struggled with how to fix that for me. And 
um, what I finally came to was I just want you to say everything's going to be okay. And so that's what he'll do, and it's perfect. Yeah. So you guys have kind of had to figure it out as you go along. Yeah, I think any business partner would. It's just we have the unique relationship in that we have a whole lot on the line you know we have a family a marriage a relationship we love each other very much and we respect each other very much but you know i've had other business partnerships um and they're rough what's been different or the same about this relationship versus previous business partnerships my previous partnership i didn't understand about the personal boundaries i didn't understand that if i was angry with the decision that she made in the business i was not angry at her and I shouldn't have taken it out on her on a personal level. I, you know, I'll never tell Miles that a decision he made, uh, I will never, I will say sometimes I didn't agree with the decision, but I'll never say I don't agree with him or I think he's not smart or, you know, it's always, I try very hard to separate um, his person from the decisions and the things he does here, his value. And I didn't do that in my first business relationship and I, I think it's a hard lesson to learn, but a lot of people need to learn it. Um, you know, you're hardest on the people you feel safest with. You know, and so you feel like if you're personally and financially invested with someone, you can maybe be a little harder on them because they don't have an out. Unfortunately, anything that's unhealthy in any part of the business that's a relationship, whether it be the partnership, your employee relationships, that's all going to seep down to the customer. Always. (laughs) I learned that lesson the hard way. It was a good business. It was a child care center. And it was good. I didn't want to digress too much. It was, a, it was a successful business, but the relationship was, the business relationship partnership was not a successful relationship. And so therefore the business ended. That can happen. What do you think makes a successful relationship? Oh, I wish I knew. I, I don't know. What do you know now that you wish you'd learned earlier? You don't have to say everything you think. <laughs> you shouldn't say everything you think. And I'm, you know, 45 years old, almost 46. And I'm right. still figuring that out. Um, and I, I have learned that I have to say it's a thing about me. I really, if I, if it's there, I have to say it. Um, and it's not because I think it's important, but it's just I'm very anxious. Um, but I, I've learned to think about the way I say it before. And in the receiving end, it's important to know it's not always about you. And those are the lessons that I feel like are the most important in business relationships because I'm sure that Miles often has to think to himself, okay, it's just her, it's just the, you know, it's just what she's saying. And I always say, and it's like I said earlier, you know, if it's something that you dislike about your partner or the thing they've done, is it about the thing they've done or about them? You know, and learn to separate the two. But you don't always have to say what you think. And the customer is not always right. And um, when you have a relationship with someone in a business, you have to have the same, you have to be able to, you have to have the same goal, same end result. You don't always have to agree about how to get there. You know, it's like being on a road trip. You know, do you want to be the guy who just stops for fast food every time? Or do you want to be the person who sits down at the diner every time for a meal, you know? What's your guys' goal for the restaurant? <laughs> it's changed a lot. You know, creating a safe and healthy work environment is important to us and safe in all aspects, you know, for our staff members. And our, so this is our work environment. We're here. We want to feel comfortable. Not only, you know, nurturing and, you know, I, we always want someone to be set up to succeed. It's important to us. I learned that because I was fortunate enough to be a manager early on and I didn't always do that. You know, I didn't always sort of look at, was I making the right decisions for this person to do a good job or did this person really not have the skills? And we've gone the wrong way. You know, we've kept someone on too long to the detriment of the business because we were personally invested, thought they might get better or because we felt like we hadn't given them enough. That's a goal to us, just to make sure that people leave here better than when they started. So how do you address that? 
Was the person fired? Oh yeah, we've definitely fired people. I definitely believe that when someone loses a job, it should never be a surprise. And I was taught that early on by a boss. And um, I was also taught that early on, I was taught that in business school, you know, they say you should be coaching, you should be giving, you know, feedback the whole time so they know when the time comes and you say, I don't think this is, I don't think this is a job for you. That shouldn't be a surprise to them. And that's on me and Miles to make that happen. I think, you know, we've definitely had people who have oversold themselves and we've believed them. Uh, We've definitely had people who just didn't have our best interest at heart. And, uh, you know, as the time has gone on, it's been easier for us to see it. We see it faster. And we also know the questions to ask ourselves. You know, not everyone who works here do I like personally. And so sometimes I'll have to say, do I just not like them? Or are they really just not good at their job? Or is it a combination of the two? I I feel like a good employee is willing to hear the thing you have to say, whether it's a criticism or not, and say, all right, cool, I'm going to run with that, or I'm going to change it. Uh, I feel like when we find in good employees, and we have, we have been so lucky with the people who work for us, um, you know, being able to have communication and talk to them. And I'm not afraid to say, oh my God, you crushed it today. You killed it. Killing it is a term we use around here. It's like, you killed it. I mean, you did it. And when they screw up, it's sort of like, yeah, it wasn't your best day. And these were the three things I saw that you did wrong, but no big deal. Like, it's really no big deal. You know, there is nothing, there's nothing here that can't be fixed. And a good employee will understand that that's where we're coming from. You know, a good employee understands that it's cool to go take a break and come back and do your work. We look for people who are just as invested. No one's going to be in as invested as we are. I mean, let's be real. But people who get it, get it. We always tell the server, don't be afraid to push a plate back across the pass if you think that that food isn't the best it could be. Don't, don't be afraid of that. And we have cooks who we tell, you guys, and I set that example, you got to be able to take feedback from a server. And if you've worked in a restaurant before, you'll know that there's sometimes, you know, front of the house and back of the house aren't so friendly. And I'm not, I'm not saying I'm any saint. When I'm on that line, I'm tough. It's yeah. tough. I'm tough on the servers, you know. But it's important here that all of our people know, you know, everybody needs everybody here. If the dishwasher doesn't come to work, it's rough. <laughs> it's rough. Bet, yeah. Really rough, you know, and the, the cooks want a good server who can represent their food. And so people here, you know, that we love as, as employees and do well with, they respect the food and they do it. And, you know, they, they are a good example of us. You know, they're our public face. So since starting the business, what are some things that have gone well and some things that you would have done differently? Hmm. Um, things that have gone well. I mean, we've, we've stuck, you know, we've stuck to our basic principles. We did a good job of sort of having a mission in the beginning of supporting local businesses, which honestly I thought was going to be easier when we first started. It was hard. We had to establish a lot of local farmers and, and meat purveyors and all of those things. We've done that really well. We've created a network of people and vendors and partners that back us up and we are loyal to them. Um, we've done that really well. We've consistently improved and admitted when we did things wrong as opposed to saying, nope, I decided I was going to make it this way and I'm going to continue to make it this way. Yeah. You know, we've said, oh gosh, no, that, that was the wrong thing to do. And we're okay to it. We were okay to admit that. We've done that really well. We've created an environment of community, which I feel like I talked about earlier is in exactly what we should have done. Um, you know, things that we've done wrong, I don't know, you know, we had our kids working, we've always had our kids working for us, right. it's hard. I don't know that we've always done that well. Okay. Um, I think 
you know, whereas in mine and Miles's relationship in a marriage, you understand there's going to be give and take and forgiveness and understanding and, you know, but in a parental relationship, your kids shouldn't always have to understand that you're a human. You know, I think it's great that they do see you as a separate human than them, but I also feel sometimes like the responsibility we put on them to be our staff and also our kids is a little overwhelming. And we learned how to do it better, but our, our daughter, Ashley, who worked for us in the beginning, um, I think maybe we were a little harder on her than we should have been. She was kind of there in the beginning parts of the business. I think that she's fantastic in the workforce because of it, and she would probably never admit that. <laughs> but... Um, you know, I don't know, I don't know that we should have had the kids here working for us as early as we did. Maybe later when we figured things out. At the same time, I love it. Early in terms of the age of the restaurant? Yes, before we had figured stuff out. But I also think one of the things we haven't done well is um, we needed to bring in help before we did. You know, we were in that weird place where we weren't making enough money to pay for help. And we would talk about it a lot. But we couldn't expand or do anything bigger because we didn't have the help. Cash 22. Yeah. And I think a lot of businesses struggle. And, you know, because we're, you know, we were, we started out as, I will tell you one of the things we did wrong that's important is we started out as a sole proprietorship. I mean, just down to the nuts and bolts, we should have been a corporation from the get-go and we were not. Um, we just recently became an LLC and that was primarily because of the catering business and because we have so many staff now, which isn't even, you know, we have 12. We made that mistake from the beginning. That was stupid. In terms of like liability? Oh, sure. I mean, and you know, the, our personal money was the business's money and the business's money was our money. And we put ourselves at incredible risk that we should never have taken. We should never have taken that risk. There's, there wasn't like a benefit to it. No, I mean, not that I saw. No, not that I understand. Not that I understand now either. And I knew we knew better. I think we were just so overwhelmed, and we did what was easy and fast. We band-aided a lot of things in the beginning, and it's kind of amazing that we're on the other end of it, <laughs> still here. But that was a mistake. It was a mistake. And I think you know, um, yeah. I mean, you know, we've we made a lot of tiny mistakes. Like I've said, I've, I know every you know bad plate of food that went out of that pass, and keeping employees longer than you should. It's a mistake. But not hiring staff and help when you need it or asking for help when you need it. We were just saying, you know, we're seven and a half years in and I'm just now being able to call on other people to get them in to help us to do things, okay. which is pretty amazing. But we used to brag about Miles and I can run this place by ourselves if we have to, which also was kind of our safety net, but it's not yeah. a great place to be. Yeah, it'd be insane. I think on the phone you were saying you were working 70 or 80 hour weeks. Yes. And that's not even a joke. Like... That's absolutely the truth. We both were. He would work a 14 to 15 hour shift here and then go work for somebody else for eight to 10 hours. That's 24 hours. <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, I would say that he had the harder end of it because oftentimes we were working those long days I was in the kitchen. So, you know, he was, you know, 14, 15, 16, 18 hours of looking people in the eye and yes, sir, no, sir, thank you. You know, it's hard. In terms of hiring people, would you generally say that people should hire sooner than later? Yes, hire people sooner. Um, definitely don't have a bunch of people standing around, but hire people sooner and be smart about what those people can do. So would a rule of thumb be to hire people as soon as you need to free up your own time to do other things? Yeah, I mean, you just said it. You need to, we need to value our own time. Entre I find that entre a lot of entrepreneurs or people who work, or just people, you know, who work for themselves in any capacity or work autonomously in any capacity, I should say, don't value their time enough. And that was the mistake we made in the beginning. You know, our own time is very valuable. And I have to say, Miles was very good about uh, putting that into perspective for me. 
because I would say I should cook through all of the cooking. I should do all of this. And, and, and I felt terrible when I came off of the line. And he said, but you're out there building the business. That's what you should be doing. Yep. You built this part. Let them do it. And he was right. I mean, that's very hard. Or I don't think you can hire someone to run the business for you. No, I don't either. You can't. Then you're just someone else's employee. But yeah, it becomes, it reverses the roles. Yeah. It's impossible. I mean, you, you know, you can have outside sales people. I mean, there's, you know, there's that structure of a business, but that's not what we're talking about here. You know, I mean, our catering company is called Rachel in the Hot Stove. Yeah. Um, you know, people want to talk to me or I, and I want to talk to them and that's how we'll do the best job. But if, you know, I'm cooking, but I can hire someone to make the food the way I want them to make it. I can't hire someone to be out here and greet the customers necessarily the yeah. same way that I can. I mean, we're just now kind of branching out and bringing in some help for the catering side of the business. We're going to hire someone to be the voice um, and it's my sister. <laughs> I mean, it's true, you know, the best people are the people who are the closely, most closely invested. Are you nervous about working with, like, adding another family member to the mix? No, she lives in out of state, so we're going to do it remotely. Yeah, and um, I'm actually really excited about it. I'm okay. really excited about it. No, I, it's going to be perfect. It's it's someone who understands, you know, what is important to us and values and, and those kinds of things. And, you know, pretty much you can learn the rest. Another thing we had talked about was the possibility of opening a second location. Can you tell me a little bit about what your attitude is on that currently? Uh, we go back and forth about it. I don't, you know, in the beginning we were like, yeah, another Fat Milo's, we'll do it. And um, we talk a lot about now, you know, we're older and we're tired. And, um, you know, we talk a lot about... What do you mean by retired? No, I mean we're tired. Not oh, we are retired. We are tired. You're like, you're not, you're not retired. Yeah. <laughs> this is not the retirement I want. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to just like sit and do nothing all day. No, but, but that uh, would be nice. So, space between. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. yeah. No, we are tired. And so, I, you know, and there are communities that call us and have said, we would love to have your place in our community, which is fantastic and it's flattering. And we've looked seriously to other spaces. And I just feel like we always come back to we'd be leveraging this place too much. You know, it isn't quite ready for us to be completely out of it and to put all of our eggs into another basket for a little while because the reality is that's what it takes. Right. No place is ever complete. You always have to work on it. And so, you know, we've talked a lot about this isn't going to be enough income to sustain us even into retirement or if one of us wanted to. So we have to look at some other way of bringing in more income and this place still has room to grow. But we've talked a lot about maybe just doing dinners, you know, buying a dinner house, opening a dinner house and bar, keeping this place um, and opening a second location, kind of doing a little bit more um, things, you know, things that I like to do. Like a different format? Yeah. Yeah. It seems like the harder way to do it. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a breakfast and lunch seven days a week, this place is a machine. Like, it's, it's a lot, you know. Not saying that opening a bar and dinner house is less work. It's just a different animal and maybe one that Miles and I are a little more comfortable with. You know, so yeah, I mean, having a little, you know, dark bar that you walk into and you could just have one bartender and one cook and one server on the floor. At this point, you know, where we have such a bustling big place, it could be, could be fun. What needs to happen for you to be able to do that? I don't really know. We talk about it a lot. We look at spaces. I think maybe the right place has to come along. I think, you know, the kids may be getting to different stages in their lives. Um, our youngest son is, you know, just starting high school. I'm not really sure. I, I, I'm really not sure. This place seems to be doing okay, but it's sort of like, well, we need more help in the kitchen. We finally have that. And then, you know, Amanda's going off to have a baby. So things are always in flux. So I think we're going to have to just say, all right, 
what's going to happen for us to make this happen, you know, and then we'll get there. I mean, part, you know, we open here for dinners on Thursday nights now. We've tried dinner here before it's failed miserably every time. We've kind of changed it up and it's going much better. What have you learned since you started this? Um, first of all, just because customers say they want it doesn't mean they're going to buy it. Second of all, you know, we're very family friendly. It's very important to us that families feel comfortable here. On the other hand, there's lots of family dining in town. And the thing that we did before for dinner is we kind of made it more Fat Milo's just at night. So you can still get breakfast all day breakfast for dinner, day. you know. But what I wanted was I wanted people to see, you know, hey, we bring in some excellent steaks and chops and like I can seriously make beautiful sauces and people just weren't buying it. It was not the thing they wanted from us. So, you know, we would just lose money hand over fist over, over it. And so finally I said, what if we just did, we do a community dinner pop-up. We take the restaurant, we put one big table down the middle, sell the seats, we redo the whole place. We have a fancy tablecloth that Allison's daughter made for us. Different, you know, mismatched plates and all those things. I always say it's a dinner party at my house, but here. And um, I make whatever I feel like making that the farms and have locally and looks great. They were a hit. We did them about once a month. I loved them so much. We had regulars from the community come, and it was kind of a date night. And I also put together wine pairings and just a very grown-up thing. And it's things that happen in Portland all the time. I mean, there's pop-ups at farms. They're everywhere. I had to charge half of what they charge in Portland, and I knew full well I was serving the same food and the same. And so I thought, well, let's do it every week, or let's try it once a month on Thursdays. And so it seemed to be pretty going, going pretty well. We call it date night. Change, we'll do it tonight in a little bit. We'll take everything off the tables. We'll put white tablecloths on. We'll change to cloth napkins, lower the lights a little bit, put in a nice dinner menu, candles on the tables, flowers from Allison's shop, and it's going well. So I think the thing we needed to do was, was sort of say, no, we're not gonna make breakfast or have a kid's menu. And you know, some families aren't real happy with me about it, but other families are bringing their kids to have beef wellington, which I super love. It's like, when I was young, my grandpa and my dad used to take me to restaurants, kind of upscale places, and my grandpa would joke because I would order, you know, like steak with blue cheese and fried shrimp, and, you know, I ate like an, an adult. So I, I, you know, my kids came to nice restaurants when they were older, so I thought, well, why not make a date night? And it's fantastic, it's going well. How did you go about marketing that and building an audience? Facebook. You just put it out there and said, hey, here's the thing we're trying. Check it out. Yep, that was it. Yeah, and I have to do a better job of marketing it in the restaurant. I'm not doing well at that, so I have to do that. But our servers, too. Hey, you can come in on Thursday nights for dinner. And what are some things that you think hold people back from starting their own business? Um, obviously, finance, finances. You know, it takes a lot of money. It takes more money than you think it's going to take. Way more money than you think it's going to take. I'm not sure security. I'm not. I'm a leaper. Like I said before, like, I'll jump. I am a romantic, so I think things are going to work out. Uh, I don't necessarily believe in, you know, things that are meant to be or not meant to be. I just feel like, you know, either you can do it or you don't do it. Um, I'm not sure what holds people back because I, you know, I know, I don't really, I guess I don't really have that mentality. I know and respect people who are cautious and thoughtful. My husband is. And sometimes I think to myself, God, I wish I could, I wish I was more cautious and thoughtful and before I made decisions. Well, the beauty of it is that you guys have someone with whom you have complementary strengths. Yeah. This is kind of my own thoughts on it, but the caution and planning and everything isn't always automatically good. You can overthink. I mean, they're good skills, but they're not good skills in isolation. You need to have someone driving things forward. You know, I've talked to people over the years. I mean, there's this, you know, this is the one word I haven't said yet is passion. And there's, you know, a definite, I mean, I balk at people who will say well I'm, I'm you know I'm a passionate at-home cook I love to cook at home I think I want to open a restaurant and it makes me cringe a little bit because it's 
I was a passionate at-home cook. I love to cook at home, and um, I love to feed people, and I love to take care of people. Right. I love to host. I love it. And I love people. I just love to hear what people have to say, their stories. Anybody will talk to me at all times. Um, and I just love that so much. Yeah. Um, at the same time, I also under had a unique understanding of what it was like to work in a restaurant because I had worked in them. And I knew that being a line cook or a cook or a chef of any kind was extremely difficult and took a whole yeah. different kind of person. Teaching myself to be a chef or and a line cook was really hard. And I had to learn on the fly. And the, again, the mistakes. I had to make so many mistakes. I mean, I definitely, you know, sat on the floor in that kitchen, like crying over, you know, burned whatever. And also because... Not only was it, you know, if you're at home and you burn the bread and you feel terrible, it wasn't, you just didn't burn, didn't just burn your paycheck. And so every burned hamburger or every sauce I broke was just money in the trash can. I mean, I can't tell you how long it took us to figure out how to make hollandaise and, you know, such a way that we liked it. And I mean, I could go on every recipe, the waffle mix, all of it, you know, and people here would be like, why do we only have chicken and waffles on Wednesday? And it's literally because I couldn't figure out how to make the best product I had and hold it and use it and keep up with it and how much we use and how to cook it and all of those things. I didn't know how. I didn't. So it was like I could do it one day a week so I could figure out how to perfect it and I could make it happen the rest of the time. And so now it's on the menu all the time. But, you know, I look up to the people I know who are, you know, who are trained chefs and line cooks and who have done it for years and um, have worked in this business for 10, 15, 20, 25 years. It's amazingly hard. If I have friends over and it's three or four people, it's not that different. Sure. But six people, yeah, it's like some kind of quantum leap happens between that fourth and sixth person. Mm -hmm. And at this point, it's suddenly stressful. It's just a lot more to orchestrate. It's basically the same food. Right. And then you go to 45 people at a time like you guys have. Right. And it's not the same activity anymore. No. You're absolutely right. Also, you know, they get, the more people you have, the further removed you get, they get from your comfort people. Four of your close friends over, you know, there could be even a family member in there or someone yeah. you're dating and you burn something. They're all like, it's fine. Yeah. Like, we know, it's not a big deal. You pour them another cup of wine. Yeah, everybody's happy. You yeah. know, no big deal. We've all been here. But, you know, you get to eight people and there's maybe someone's date there that they're trying to impress. Or, you know what I mean? It gets, it gets exponentially more people and harder because right. you want to you want to please them so you're saying that six to eight even more, that's another leap yeah yeah because you're trying to impress them right and it's people who might not be as understanding if you burn something or don't have something vegetarian or vegan or gluten-free or so every extra two people adds this extra layer, <laughs> yeah. layer. right man it's impressive that you guys are serving that many people we wow. serve about on a on our busiest saturdays and sundays we serve a little over 250 around about 220 to 250 people and i can remember when we served 200 people the first time i was like no way we can't do more than that because there's only 45 seats in here and we're open for six hours it's one turn an hour mm -hmm. and i thought no way we could do it and we do it <laughs> it's amazing i love that spirit because it seems almost like the essence of entrepreneurship just constantly on the edge of your comfort zone Oh, yeah. Just building out something from really... Nothing. Yeah. I appreciate that. I mean, I de it's we cool. definitely have our moment. I definitely have my moments where I'm not going to lie. You know, I've walked out that back door and gone, that place could burn to the ground today, and I'd be relieved. You know, I mean, definitely I've looked at Miles and said, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. And he's done the same with me. 
Right. You know, and we've definitely had to say to each other, you know, when that's the overwhelming feeling, it's right. time to look for a way out. Um, I mean, there are definitely times, you know, where it's been so hard. And, you know, I think about, you know, what we've given up in order to do the thing we want to do. I, will, I don't like to say what we've given up for this place because I think that's unfairly um, painting this place in a negative light. We chose to do this. But at the same time, this seems more valuable to you than the other things, just based on your decision. Yeah. And, you know, at the same time, it's like we gave up a lot of time with our kids and, you know, and, and our families and vacations and all the things we could have maybe done otherwise. And there are people who definitely, I know it, will say, you have a brain tumor. The thing you want to do is, you know, fry eggs on a Saturday morning. And I think that to myself sometimes. This is the thing I'm doing. Like, if I had a brain tumor... I would go, you know, sail all of the oceans. And then I'm like, wait, I do have a brain tumor. <laughs> you know, I would write a book. Or it's hard. It's really hard to figure out what's valuable and what's not valuable. But this place has definitely made me see and understand more of my own, you know, humanity and others than I had, ex I think, than I would have seen in any other job. Also, I really like to eat. And here's the third and final part of our conversation after Rachel invited me back a few days later. Are we working? Is it working this time? Yes. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, yeah. The one thing you have to know about working with chefs and working in kitchens is we will tease you mercilessly That's about okay. any mistake you make. That's all right. Zach back there put um, salt instead of sugar in the bourbon French toast mix. And he was our newest cook. He's fantastic. Did but he's our newest out? cook. Oh, gosh, no. It was horrible. <laughs> and it, what was interesting is we couldn't figure out how long we'd been serving it. It had been on the line, yeah. right? And so a woman was like, this tastes a little bit salty. Sure enough, it was salty. Yeah. And then we took it back. Um, it was like, what's going on? This is the middle of a packed Saturday, like just slammed, right? And so I knew immediately. It was like, okay, there's, there's absolutely no reason for this to be salty. Someone put salt instead of sugar. But we'd been using it all day. And so what happened was he had um, just put a little bit in to kind of get us through the end of the day. So I was like, how could people have been eating this all day? Like, it's horrible. Um, but anyway, it was just a little bit. And it was like, you know, two servings or something. But, you know, it was, so anyhow, anytime anybody, you know, anytime Zach is going to make a recipe, we're like, you know, make sure you use salt instead of sugar. And, you know, how yummy is that? And is it all salted up? And yeah, so he's never going to, he'll never, ever, ever live that mistake down. Yeah. It will define him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how it is in a kitchen. You got to laugh. You got to laugh. One of the things was, why was it so important for you guys to create something that would, I think you used were like, to survive you, purely a financial thing or more of like a legacy thing? Um, well, a lot of the reason that a restaurant or, you know, a food service seemed like a good idea in order to um, have a sustainable business that we could maybe pass on to the kids or even sell um, at the end of its, you know, most... Um, you, I don't want to say useful life, but you know, when we were finished, when we felt like we'd been at the end of the you know restaurant owning journey, or at least this one. I mean, it was important because at the time, I you know I was sick and it was feeling like there was a kind of a clock on me, and the restaurant seemed like something we could build that you can build and then sort of let it run. Uh, you know, you have to nurture any business, and so I think maybe we were not correct in thinking that it was gonna that it's going to survive, out survive, and be the same. I'd, you know, Miles will often say, we joke a lot. Anyway, we once went to a restaurant in a, um, Hood River, which we love, and somebody asked the owner if the restaurant was for sale, and his answer was, the restaurant is always for sale. And we laughed so hard, and it, it's, we, say it all, we say it all the time. And so, 
because it's such a hard business and the profit margin is so low and it takes so much nurturing and taking care of, I think we were incorrect in thinking that this was something that was gonna survive us this, in the same way, that it was going to be the same being or that it will be after we're not in the building every day. Just because it takes so much personal yes. like, effort. Yes, it's, I understand why companies would take a restaurant idea like this and turn it into a um, franchise or a chain. Because it seems as though the idea is so great, you could put it in a small community, you can make it happen again. But again, going back to doing business in a small community like Sherwood, you, we can't ever create this again. We won't be able to recreate this. And while on paper and as a business person reading the P&L, absolutely we could build another one. Absolutely we could put another one in Tigard and we could put another one in Beaverton. And I have no doubt that they would thrive and do well. I do not think we will ever create the first what we had here in the first five or six years. Right, like each one would be a new thing. Yes, well, sustainable, yes, but, but Miles in the beginning said, well, we could just sell it. And I realized that I was dead set against it. I think as a business person, you know, as a business major, I prided, I, you know, I prided myself on looking at numbers and thinking that way. And then I realized, because immediately I was like, we're not selling this place. Nobody else is gonna have Fab Milo's as the name? Absolutely not. These are my recipes, this is my stuff. And that was when I went, oh man, I have made the first mistake in business, which is, you know, personalizing it. It's my baby. And um, that, was a mis that was a mistake on my part, I think. Um, it may still be a mistake, because really we will work ourselves to the bone. We'll, we will pay everyone before we pay ourselves. But a common business practice, though, or a common statement you'll hear, is there's no such thing, you know, equity isn't a real thing. Sweat equity is not real in the business industry, or it's not equitable. So for instance, I, we've already put all of that in, you know, all of the 15, 16, 17 hour days, the 70, 80 hour work weeks, they're in. And to someone else, they're not valuable at all. I mean, it adds no value to the business. The only thing valuable in a business is the profit and loss statement and the idea. So it's all, you know, that same thinking has helped me though understand what is value, what we can value, and that, you know, definitely you can say, when you're thinking about a mistake, for instance, okay, I, this is a big, I've tried this and it's a failure. You have to stop right then. When you decide that something, when you determine something's a failure, just stop doing it. Don't think about, but I spent, $1,500 on it and 75 hours because it doesn't make that mistake any more valuable. Yeah, throwing good money after bad. Yeah, and, and what a lot of people will do is be so too afraid to say or look back and just kind of wipe that off and say, well, I mean, yep, I spent you know 72 hours trying to figure out how to make this waffle mix and the waffles aren't any good. You gotta start over, you don't have a choice. Yeah. It's like classic sunk cost fallacy. Yes, it's exactly what it is. Yeah, it's a big fallacy and it's hard for people to embrace it, which is exactly what we're talking about. So when we talk about this place surviving me, I think that was the idea in the beginning. Um, I'm not so sure. I mean, first of all, I don't, you know, the kids have kind of moved on to their own things. Yeah. Um, our youngest is 14. Maybe he'll want it when we're, you know, when we've decided we can't do it anymore. I really don't know. I know that I struggle with selling the name the brand and the recipes, that would be hard for me. It would have to be just the right reason or just the right person. 
you know, so yes, the idea was to have something that could survive us and that possibly we didn't have to be here every day, or I didn't at least, to make it work. But we're still, you know, seven and a half years later, that's still not the case. What do you want from the restaurant now, like moving forward? Like, what are your expectations now? Right? It's, it's interesting because I think about it a lot. I thought about it on my drive-in today because if, if, the value, if we're not putting a value on it to sell it, then what exactly are we working towards? You know, we won't retire um, from this place necessarily. I, th- I feel like eventually we'll know that this place has run its course. I don't think we're there yet. I don't think we're close. I think if what I could get, if what we could get out of this place is a base for something else or a launching point for someone else, I think it's hard to determine when we'll decide that this place is successful because I don't, I don't necessarily feel comfortable saying it's successful now. And every once in a while I'll have a fit and be like, I'm throwing, I'm, I have a successful business and I'm you know, a grandma and I have kids and I'm doing all the things. And that's when I'm like, wait, is it a successful business? You know? <laughs> um, so I, you know, I, I'm sorry, I don't really have a solid answer about um, how we'll know um, that we've gotten what we wanted to out of it. I mean, let's be real, we, we've gotten a lot out of this place already. I don't want to discount everything that's come from it. You know, we've, we've been able to support so many nonprofits. We've been able to donate so much money and product and time. I mean, we've been able to build our own tiny, you know, small community here. You know, we, we could close the doors and walk away and feel great about what we've done, yeah. but we still wouldn't have any money. <laughs> that. yeah. So that's tough. That's a tough one. Yeah. Well, I think in terms of just thinking about life, like that's a pretty reasonable way to have spent your time though. Like regret. I mean, if it's like great experiences and you don't regret it, like that's, that's good. Sure. And I mean, I don't want to in any way discount how hard it is. Cause like, I understand. Yeah. But it, I don't know. Like it's a rich experience. Like a, for sure. Oh yeah. Uh, absolutely. The lessons that we've learned. Um, I mean, I said it, I said it before, I'll say it again, you know, if the thing, if we had known the things we'd done in the first three years, if we had known now what we knew, you know, sorry, if we had known then what we know now, things would be completely different, but would they be, I mean, would we be where we are had we not made this, those mistakes? You know, we have to spend a lot of time thinking about big picture. Yeah. What, what would you do differently if you were to restart it? Oh man, so much. Um, I would take less advice from people. Okay. Yeah, I think Miles and I both would. We would listen less and to others and pay attention more to our own feelings and understandings of the way things were. We didn't trust ourselves enough in the beginning, and we should have. Um, we would have hired staff sooner, more staff sooner. Um, we would not, I brag all the time that, you know, our bank would love us and other people loved us because Miles and I could run this place by ourselves in the early days. Right. And we, had, we were debt free. We had no loans to open it. Um, we did have gifts from family, but no loans. And so, uh, you know, that was great. So we didn't have a lot of liability, but it was a mistake. Had we had more people helping us in the team, we would have done a better job ha- spending the capital, more capital up front. And I mean, I don't know that there was more capital or we could have actually done it, um, but that was one of them. We underestimated, we underestimated the value. I mean, we overestimated the value of the restaurant when we bought it. Um, and that was a mistake. We would do that differently. I think um, bringing on, um, replacing ourselves earlier in the game would have been key to speeding up um, the success that we have now. Um, we relied on ourselves too much to do the work. And um, I probably would have opened the catering business sooner. Yeah. Exactly, because you would have 
you free up your time to do higher value things yes. that grow the business more. Yes. The mistake that we made was undervaluing ourselves. Yeah. yeah. In all aspects. We didn't listen to our own gut. We didn't think value our time enough. It was in all those things. Right. It's interesting. Well, I mean, you've learned a lot. I, yeah. That's one of the <laughs> things that I'm excited about with, I want to start something, mm-hmm. some kind of business. I don't know what it would be, mm-hmm. but I figure like the worst thing I get out of it is that I learn a lot. Right. Like, and that, I don't know, that, that helps somehow, like down the line. Like sure. It, like it has to. I think, well, I say all the time, I mean, I worked in early childhood education. That was my first degree and my, the first thing I did. And I use that so much in this industry, you know, learning customer service, how to communicate with folks. Cause you know, you communicate with parents in childcare and you communicate with kids. And in childcare, I used to say this all the time when I would train people, name one business where you see your customers twice a day, every day you're in business. It's, I mean, you can't, I mean, the more you think about it, the more it's like, how many, you have two times to touch your, your customers. Yeah, like, the closest one I can think of is like, if someone's getting breakfast and lunch at McDonald's or right, something. Right, every day. But not every, yeah, even then it's Right, not. yeah. Or and then, you know, if Starbucks, you have, like maybe Starbucks, daily, maybe, yeah. Daily, like, but not, yeah. not twice daily. And so, you know, we would have the opportunity to, you know, to hit our customers twice a day, every day. But it was also the opportunity to make them angry or to do something wrong. And so I learned a lot about impressions of customers and communicating with them. I also learned a lot about what to allow your employees or expect your employees to take. And here at Fat Milo's, we try really hard to not let our servers and kitchen staff really kind of, the customer is not always right. Yeah, you mentioned that last, can, that was one of the things I wanted to ask you yeah. about. Can you get into that? Yeah, the customer is not always right. The customer um, is always important. Um, but, you know, to the, you know, your staff are really important. They're the ones, you know, who are going to be there day after day. And I feel like when a customer is wrong is when they are asking for you to do something outside of your box, which I should say is also one of the mistakes we made early on, pleasing everybody. Do not try to please everybody. Figure out what it is the thing that you do best and just do that. And if people are asking for something else, maybe this isn't the business you should be in, you know, or maybe, maybe that's not what you should do. But, you know, when, going back to the customer, I mean, you know, I'm pretty famous for answering Yelp reviews back. Yeah. I'm pretty uh, outspoken about Yelp reviews. Uh, we've gotten, there's, I say there's nothing worse than a, Yelp, a bad Yelp review that we re- deserve. I mean, that's the worst feeling. And we'll talk about it. We will not, no staff member will get fired or lose their job because of a Yelp review or a Google review or TripAdvisor ever. Um, we, will always ask a, um, we will always ask our staff about a, Yelp, a bad Yelp review quietly and to the side um, before we make any decisions about maybe we should change things. And we've definitely read customer reviews and gone, oh man, we should have changed. That's, yeah, he's right. I always say that if a customer is not taking the time to communicate with you that they're unhappy, um, then probably they weren't really concerned about having a good experience in the first place. Because you know, if you think about it, when you go someplace, any place, and you want to have a good experience, generally, you want to walk in the door, buy the thing, product you wanted to buy, find the right product, buy it, enjoy it, and leave with it. Um, if that doesn't happen, generally, you would say, "Hey, you know, I this isn't. What do you? Hey, what can I help you find today? You're at Home Depot." Well, I want this piece of plumbing. Okay, well, here it is. And, you know, so you don't, you walk out the door with that piece of plumbing or you don't. But if you don't, you say, this isn't the right one. You know, you, can, you have communication with that person yeah. who's what's, serving you. What's a, do you have any thoughts on like what a good way to do that is? For a customer? Yeah. Because oh. like I'm kind of a timid person when it comes sure. to those sort of things. Yeah. Like, I don't think, 
I would ever like send like something back to the kitchen as a customer. Yeah, people say that a lot. It is uncomfortable to do, but let me just say this part. Any restaurant, any cook, any chef who believes in the product they're giving wants you to do just that. Because the thing we want you to do, at least here and for most places I've worked at, is leave happy with the product you wanted and you paid for. So it's perfectly, uh, nobody in our kitchen is going to get angry at you for saying, hey, you know, I ordered the bourbon French toast. You brought me a waffle. I'm totally happy with a waffle, but may I please have the bourbon French toast? You know, or hey, I, my egg isn't cooked the way I wanted it to be cooked. And sometimes our servers will say, well, how do you want it cooked? Like maybe you said over medium, but what you really wanted was over hard, you know, right. or over easy. Yeah, because these are arbitrary Yeah. Yeah, phrases. to us they're not, but to you or a regular customer it might be. Right. Yeah. yeah, and so our servers will some to are trained to say, well, how do you want that exactly? You know, so they tell them and then they communicate to the kitchen and we make sure you get the right thing. But it's definitely something hard and I'm the same. I'll make decisions about whether I want to send something back. I'll rarely send something back to a kitchen. Um, but, you know, definitely speaking of rarely, I'll do it for meat that's not cooked to the temperature I want it. You're paying a lot of money for it. And I think it's okay to have the expectation. And saying things like, well, it's kind of a divey place, or it's a small place, or maybe they don't know what they're doing, that's disrespecting their work. And so if you think about it that way, you know, they want to do a good job. They want you to have good food and tell your friends, and also they want you to come back. So let them, give them the opportunity to do it. I always say, just give us the opportunity to fix it. And if we still can't get it right, by all means, give me the one-star Yelp review and call me names or whatever. But if you were here and, then you, and you didn't ask us and we came to you and said, hey, what do you think? You know, how's your breakfast? Are you enjoying it? Is this what you wanted? You know, if you say, yep, it's great. Thank you. And then you walk out the door and give us a one-star Yelp review. Those are the ones that make me mad. Yeah, yeah those are the ones. <laughs> What's worked well for you in reaching out to the community? So uh, social media has been huge. Um, Facebook. Um, I use Twitter. I find that not many of our diners use it. Um, but Facebook, Facebook and social media have been huge. Both my own personal page, which I have public, and um, our Fat Milo's page. From day one, it's been useful. I mean, just for posting things like what the soup is. Um, you know, we've been extremely fortunate to be in this community. And I've said this before, but it's, it's very difficult to do business in a small community because it's a small community, you know, and so people talk, people remember, if you make mistakes, they're gonna tell every single person they know. Um, but at the same time, if, they, if you do well, they'll tell everybody they know and they'll support us. And what I learned early through social media was I needed to be honest. And so what we've done is be very honest. And I think sometimes we've maybe turned people off that way. Uh, how, do you, like in terms of too much information? Or? Um, I don't know about that. We be, we're very careful about the too much information, but we will definitely say things like, we need business. And so if you like us and you want us to be here and you want us to stay in this spot and this location, we need you to come in for lunch this week or we need you to come in for breakfast this week or we need you to send someone in. Um, I've been very honest about when things are difficult for us. Um, uh, you know, but I've also been very honest about the gratitude and it's definitely, you know, I will post when we're grateful. I will let them know, I will let our customer base know that we had a record Saturday or a record Sunday and, um, you know, down to the amount of covers we do, which is how many plates. Um, you know, and I'll say, oh man, we blew this. Like, we totally blew this, guys. And so we're sorry that we tried, we did this and we failed. You know, we'll come back at it again. Or, you know, hey, thanks for sticking with us. But I found that when we need business, we ask for it, and that's been helpful. Because, you know, if, if people, people won't come to the business if we're not doing a good job. 
but I, I hate I hate it when you're in a neighborhood, you know, and it's like, uh, you know, you've only been to a place one or two times and you think, oh, man, I loved it. And then you go back and the third time and they've closed. Yeah. And that terrible feeling of, oh, man, I really liked it and I didn't come back enough. And I didn't follow their Facebook page enough and I didn't share it. Um, I don't want that feeling to happen here. And I never did. So I thought, well, I'm going to bring everybody in. It's a community. They'll help us as much as they can and um, or want to. Right. Yeah. So it's so much more of a community effort yes i when i use facebook i see it not as a newspaper ad replacement but as a way to talk to our guests and i know very you know there's personal very personal and but also not you know just sort of here's the you know here's the soup today or you know here's tonight's dinner menu right or, so you it's know. kind of like a mix yeah i'll ask for input you know i'm personal. sometimes i'm st- literally i'm stumped or i have too many ideas for menus and i'll say what do you guys what do you guys want like yeah, what do you guys want to see on the menu? What kind of sandwich do you want? You know, what kind of soup? Because I'm sure I'm missing something. And I get great ideas from it. I mean, I was just reminded that we hadn't had meatloaf in a while. So last week we put meatloaf on the dinner menu and sold out. You know, um, it's important to, you know, that especially at a place like this that aims at families and is, you know, thriving in a small community to make sure that their voices are heard. And they are. In terms of getting funding to get the business off the ground, I mean, you mentioned family members, right. like basically just giving you guys money to do sure. it. Was yeah. that, is that a difficult thing to do? Like, oh, was that um, or how did, so my husband, yeah, my husband, Miles, my business partner, um, his mother passed away and was eight and unfortunately, and left us some money. And, um, we decided to invest that in, in the restaurant. And I, you know, I often say now, sometimes I, not sometimes, all the time. I wish she were here and not the money and that we could have found a way to do the restaurant without her passing away because I could, we could really have used her advice in the beginning. (laughs) But also um, we went to, we have business partners and those business partners are my husband's brother, Joel and his wife, Dawn. And it was a little bit difficult to to go to them. But remember at the time when we bought the restaurant, I had been just diagnosed with a brain tumor. So it was, it was a fine line for us of like not guilt. We didn't want to guilt anybody. Like you, can you imagine like, I mean, I've had cancer for, you know, 20 years. So I had had it, you know, we were all kind of used to it, but you know, so it was sort of like, oh, by the way, you know, I have a brain tumor. And so here's the thing we're going to do. But it was really hard because we didn't want them to feel guilty at all. Like, you have to give us this money because I'm dying. Like, that was horrible. Yeah. So we were really, um, we were really careful to say, you know, here's our idea. Here's our plan. You know, here's the paperwork. Here's what we would like to do. We went at it to them as a loan. Um, they decided they would just come in as partners. And um, so they are. They're listed in our family corporation as uh, members of the corporation. Our family corporation is Our Family Business, LLC. And, um, you know, they, we've, even, we've had to go back to them. I'm not, you know, I'm not ashamed to admit, you know, we've had to go back to them and ask them for a little bit more. Um, and they gave willingly, but also said the thing that everyone should say when you lend someone money. Um, how can I help you to not have to come back? You know, like this much is going to get you out the rut, but how much is going to keep you from coming back here to get out of the rut again? Right. Which was really great. You know, it was a great, it, and it's the best advice I can give. Was like, that in terms of giving just more money or other support? We needed more money. Um, and it was, I can't remember why, but I remember at the time it felt like it was so on fire. That's the other thing is everything seems so, so urgent when you're in it. I say this all the time, but when you're out of it, you know, if, if there's anything you can do to step back and look outside or find a friend that you can talk to who can go, oh, man, that's not that big of a deal. Yeah. 
that's important. But that's what they did for us is they were like, okay, well, that's not too big of a deal. But how about if you, what can we give you so you don't have to come back? And it wasn't a lot, but it was a huge amount to us. It was probably to cover payroll, if I had to guess. It'd be the only thing we'd, uh, we'd, um, we'd take a loan out for. And so they, you know, <clears throat> they've been great partners. And they've, you know, they've basically stuck by the when you sell it, buy us out. Um, and so we were extremely fortunate to have family who was willing to give us the money. I don't know, I don't know how, to, how we could have asked for it from anyone else but them. Because I felt like they, we were all kind of at the same place in life where... We were looking for ways to make our, you know, to sort of find our paths. Yeah. Um, and it is, um, you know, it was, it was very difficult because nobody wanted to assume that Margaret, my husband's mom, would, want, would have wanted to do that with her money. So we were very careful about that too. Like, I have no idea what she would have said. I mean, she could have said we were nuts or she could have said, I'll give you the money. I mean, we just don't know. Yeah. So it was up to them to make that decision. And honestly, 100% honestly, they could have said no to us and we would have been absolutely fine and never looked back, you know, and just kind of moved on and found a new, a new way to do it. But, you know, they've been great partners. They're, they, um, they ask for almost nothing <laughs> and we include them as much as we can. But there were definitely times when they were here working with us just the same, you know, helping us out when we were shorthanded. Luckily, we don't have to call on them anymore. Yeah. And then I think one thing we caught that didn't make it last time was... Um, like, how long was it for you guys till you, from, like, starting to break mm -hmm. even? Oof. That's tough. Um, gosh, I think we were probably in the third year um, that we knew we were going to be okay. Yeah. We were in the red. I mean, so we were in the black fairly early on. I mean, I mean remember, we didn't have loans. So yeah, that's cre cleaning the grill. That's the sound of them cleaning the grill. <laughs> it's a terrible sound. Um, Anyway, we were never, you know, we did because we didn't owe any money. Right. We never really we started in the red. Um, we didn't have any loan payments, so um, I don't think we were able to take money for ourselves until about year three, and then we also hit a really bad spot. Um, maybe year four or five. Um, my illness got pretty rough. We had to spend a lot of money on medical bills. Um, things really kind of caught up with us. We had let things go too long here without pay. Um, and things got really sketchy and kind of scary. And um, the community held a fundraiser for me to help with expenses, which paid two months of our house payment, which we were behind. Three months of our house payment, which we were behind. And um, that was it, like that was the catalyst we needed. But it was at that point that we, so about three, about three years in, we started to break even and of course, you know, in, in business school, they tell you if you make it the first three years, you're probably gonna be okay. Right. We, you know, we opened a restaurant at the worst time. It was in 2010. The recession was hardcore, catching up with everybody. Restaurants were closing left, left and right. It was, it was, there was literally all the things stacked against us. Right. It was, I mean, it was amazing that we made it this far. Well, it's a good time. <laughs> it's a good time to buy. <laughs> true that. Yeah, true that. Yeah. Yeah, it was when housing here was rough. You know, um, housing prices were low. People here in Sherwood were underwater with their homes. There wasn't a lot of expendable income for families. And we were careful about that. We knew that even though you could read the economic development reports here and it was one of the highest median incomes in the metro, we also knew that oftentimes it was one working family member in a home that was a lot more than they could afford that was now worth a lot less. And you know, people were in different situations here than it looked like from the outside. And we were very careful about that with our pricing and everything else. Yeah. 
are your kids entrepreneurial? Oh, huh. Um, probably, I think Jacob, our oldest son, will probably do something for himself. You know, he's 21. Um, he's seen us do it. He knows what the work is. He'll probably work for himself, I would imagine. Um, why, do you think, why do you think that is? Um, he, <laughs> he doesn't do a great job working for the man. <laughs> okay. And he's a smart kid, and he understands about hard work, and he has good ideas. But he has just enough ego to know that he's going to be the best one to do those ideas, okay. no one else, and so he should do it. And it does take some sort of ego right. to believe that you should be a business owner. Because, you, right, you have an idea and you're like, nobody can do this but me because right. I'm great and I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I mean, it's true. Yeah. I, I know he it. has a very high self-esteem, that one. And so uh, maybe our youngest son, but he's a little more pragmatic. Um, our, old, our middle daughter, Ashley, who worked for us for the longest, um, many of our, our regulars have seen, saw her. I mean, we had regular guests at her high school graduation and at her college graduation. So it's pretty fun. Um, she works for Intel. I don't think she'll be an entrepreneur. I think she likes her free time too much. Okay. Um, but she definitely has the spirit. She believes nobody can do it as good as she can, as well as she can. Yeah. And she's very smart and brings a lot to the table, which is important. And then our oldest daughter, Amanda, works for us here as our manager. If anybody takes this place out from our hands, it will be her. That's my, that's, my, um, that's my prediction. So 10 years from now, if I'm wrong, you can call me on it. But yeah. if anybody takes this place and keeps it going, when we, don't, when we can't, it'll be Amanda. Uh, in terms of your own entrepreneurial development, was there anything early on that really encouraged you to move more in this direction or that you think like, influenced you to be this way? Nobody is surprised that I work for myself. Um, I can't imagine they would be. I dropped out of high school at 16. I was not a great kid. I was a rough kid. Um, I dropped out of high school at 16, um, kind of floated around for a little bit, went to junior college. Um, I had my AA and early childhood education by the time I was like 18 or so. Um, and then I had to piece together the rest of my college, you know, online classes, night classes. After Jacob was born and after we owned the child care center, I went back to school for business classes. It took me years to finish those, and I did, but... Um, I've been bosses, I've been managers, I've been, you know, I started as a teacher's aide and all I was allowed to do was change diapers and make snack. Um, I've worked as a cocktail waitress, I've worked in terrible biker bars. Um, but I, you know, it's funny because when you, as a cocktail server or even a food server, you are kind of an entrepreneur. You're, you're definitely, you're your own brand, you have to hustle a little, you know, you manage your own brand and, you know, you learn to communicate with people and see their needs and meet them. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, it's no surprise that I work for myself because I don't, I'm not really good at following the rules. I believe in following, I'm not a rule breaker, but I, I always question the rules, I should say. I, I don't, I need to understand why we're doing it. I remember at one point my dad said, to aren't you going to- the point where you're like more or less rewriting the rules yourself. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you know, like I, it's fine if everybody else wants to, but this doesn't work for me. And so my dad at one point said, you're going to regret graduating because you will have looked back and wish you had worn that cap and gown. And I've never in my life wished I had worn a cap and gown. And I remember at the time thinking, like, what? How? I don't understand. Like, no, not even, that is, like, I, that's not even remotely what I would, you know, why it matters to me. And so, yeah, you know, did I choose the easiest, easiest path? No. But, um, yeah, I mean, for me to be working for myself is no surprise. There, would be, there was really no other path. I mean, of course, I mean, I very much liked working in nonprofit, to be honest. I really liked working in nonprofit. 
Um, would you have been happy as an employee your whole life? No, I don't think I would have. I think I would have looked for a way to maybe, you know, create my own nonprofit or a way to help people and sustain it. Um, and then, you know, I look at Miles, my business partner and husband, and I don't think anyone would expect it of him necessarily, except that he's so slow and steady and even and thoughtful about the things that he does, which makes him a perfect entrepreneur. Um, he understands the work and sees the best and smartest way to get it done and then does it very evenly and calmly. So problem solver. Yes. Mm -hmm. He takes longer to solve something than I do. Um, but this is usually the better way to do it. <laughs> kind of the slowest, steady, steady is uh -huh. fast yes. situation. Yeah. Early on, what obstacles did you guys encounter with starting the business? Um, besides lack of capital? Uh, yeah, lack of capital. Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely lack of capital. We didn't qualify for an SBA loan. We didn't, we didn't have any of the conventional ways of, you know, getting a business loan or business started or business capital. Um, anybody at the time in 2010 would have thought we were nuts for trying to open a restaurant. So how um, did you like work around that? I mean, you know, we, like I said, we worked with a skeleton crew. We had, you know, very, very low. Um, we worked with, we spent a lot of money on ingredients and product and very little on the labor. So we worked really, really hard, but made sure the project we put out was the best. And I always say that to this day, narrow it down, do the thing you do the best. Um, and don't cast such a wide net, like I talked about earlier. But the other obstacle I think would have was just, um, I mean, if my health was, a, it was huge. I don't want to ignore it. I don't like to use it as an excuse for us making mistakes, but you know, in the early days we had to close. We would have to put close signs up if my chemotherapy was rough or I couldn't work through it or you know, I just had a day or I couldn't handle it. And people would bring that up to us years later. You know, we, we wanted to come in, but we never knew what your hours were and you know, kind of looking down on us. And it was really hard to not say, why? But it wasn't their problem. It's not their problem. It's, you know, they didn't opt. I say this all the time. They didn't opt to open a business. They didn't take this risk knowing they had cancer. So why should they have to pay for it as a customer? And so, or like I feel mean, guilty about it. Yeah, or, I don't, yeah. there's no reason to guilt. And I never want anyone to walk in this door because they feel guilty. Um, but that being said, you know, that was our biggest obstacle. I mean, I, you know, there were times where I had literally when I was cooking and Miles was out front where I had a, a lawn chair in the back. And I would be sitting in it, like laying in it practically with a blanket, waiting for an order to come through, get up, wash my hands, make the order and go lie back down. I mean, that was probably the lowest, most difficult parts. You know, that was, yeah, I mean, it wasn't great. Yeah, so it's, a hard, it's hard not to ignore that. Um, and also, uh, you know, we didn't do a lot of advertising in the Banian, which, you know, my advertising and marketing friends will kill me for admitting this, but we didn't, and we probably should have. We probably should have. I always say you should spend it. You should spend the money if you have it. Never say it's a waste of money, but we didn't have it. So I think maybe that's why Facebook became so integral for us. It was free. In terms of other people starting businesses, like what do you think holds people back? Besides capital, again, well, money. I, mean, I think access to capital. What are ways that people can work around the... Oh, I mean, I think that, you know, there are a lot of communities that have not figured out how to support entrepreneurialism. And it's kind of a big deal to me. There are main street organizations. There are economic development departments in cities. I think when, you know, cities and communities start to understand what it is to support mom and pop, individual business or just, you know, small entrepreneurial businesses, when they figure out what it takes to support it, those communities thrive with small business. And then you get to the communities that maybe have spent less time and money on economic development and plans and how to support a small business in their community. And that can be really hard. And so 
I would say, you know, one of the problems for people starting out would be lack of resources. You know, you can go to the Small Business Administration. Um, there's another, there are a few other really great organizations that will help you find your mentors and talk to you about it. Um, but sometimes, you know, if you're in a big city like Portland, you might not be able to figure out who it is you can talk to about how best to lease a building or how best to get a space. Or right. I think um, we close ourselves off, entrepreneurs, I mean, a little bit, and business owners. Oh, you're busy. We're busy. I'm, I feel like Miles and I are never too busy to talk to someone who wants to know about our business or wants to know or is looking for some advice or some help. And I've learned that I, won't, I don't tell people how to do it, just how I'm, I'm happy to share how we did it. And I'm definitely okay with saying, here's the thing we did wrong. Right. Like, you can do it, but it's what we did wrong. And we'll always help. I mean, we buy, we will buy local here before we'll buy um, organic or cheap. And then next is organic. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, anyway, I think the res lack of resources is hard. There are large organizations, but not when you get grassroots. Um, and so if a business owner is or an entrepreneur is lucky enough to try to start a business in a place where the community, the municipality understands how to support small businesses coming in, that's so huge. So what sort of, what does that look like in terms of support? Um, let's see. So Tigard is a great example, I think. They have a great economic development people. They, you can call them um, City Hall, your economic development person, and they will talk to you about space they have available that they know is available within the city. There are grants, uh, matching grants um, for things like putting in new floors in a business. Um, Beaverton also has those, um, you know. Uh, if you want, if you have a business and you want to, I'm trying to think there's a new one there, um, a wood-fired oven place, and the city helped them pay for the wood-fired oven for their pizza. You know, um, they invest in them. So look for, looking for things like matching grants, uh, facade grants to make your buildings look nice. Um, they have advice. Main Street organizations are great because they'll get you in touch with other people in Main Street. Um, there are cities that have... Um, uh, classes and things where you can, you know, talk and learn from other business leaders. Um, there are things like, um, I want to say, there's an interesting place that I love called the Portland Mercado, which is, is partly Portland, but also just an organization. And at this organization, it's a bunch of food carts. And at that space, there's a, um, there's a commissary kitchen for the cards to use, there's an accountant, there's an attorney, there's an insurance agent. You know, you don't have to use all of them, but all of those resources are there. And to me, it's the most amazing small business incubator I've ever seen. Because, um, you know, we're talking about dual languages, sometimes three and four different languages. Um, it's really great. Um, and some, you know, you'll see cities that support those things. Um, it's important to look for those resources, because if they're not there, um, It'll hurt. It's hard, you know, because you're kind of recreating the wheel. And then kind of the other side of that. The other, why would a community want it? Yeah, I mean, why would they? I mean, for sure. I mean, people talk about that all the time. Like, why should my business, you know, why should my tax dollars go towards supporting someone doing a business? Well, I mean, to me, it's obvious. We own a business here. We live in Beaverton. We do not live in Sherwood. We pay property taxes at this business, um, and we pay them at our home in Beaverton. And our landlord pays property taxes. So, you know, to make it simplify it completely, this businesses are your tax base in any city, in any community. Obviously, a larger corporation is going to have a larger amount of tax. It's better for you. We pay more taxes here than a lot of the homeowners in town on our property here in this space. So we pay property tax, but we can't vote and we don't have a voice here, technically, um, an official voice. And that, so that can be difficult. 
But because we are a part of this community and we rely so much on the community as far as making our own money, we give it back. Small businesses, I believe, give back. I know our small business gives back more of our you know, gross, pro, you know, gross um, income than any business percentage-wise in town. I, would, I could tell you what we give and what our percentage, and it's close to 10 to 12% of our gross profit. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. And we don't buy sponsorships. Um, we try very hard not to do sponsorships. We try to give tangible things. Um, we'll bring food. We'll donate labor, gift certificates. Um, having an environment which creates entrepreneurialism and supports it in a small city in a small town or a big town just creates more members of your community that are invested. Just like a property owner who owns a home is going to keep that street and that property nice looking, right? Yeah, you've got kind of model citizens. Exactly. And then yeah. you have a business that, I mean, if we aren't, if we don't help support the community, the community is not going to support us. Right. And but that's like the nature of a community. You want everyone to be invested yes. in the success of everyone else in the community. Right. But if you don't mow your lawn, your HOA might get on you, but you're still going to get your paycheck. But if I don't keep my windows clean and my sidewalk swept, I'm not going to get a paycheck because people are going to stop coming in because my business isn't going to look great. Right. You know, so it's it's valuable to us to keep the community to keep a big face and voice in the community, um, especially for us. You know, we don't like I said, we don't have our kids in school here, so we don't drop off and pick up. We don't see all the families. It's a little different. We try very hard, you know, to be a part of this community. I'm, I've sat on uh, several boards here and um, even a special committee for the city. Um, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes I just want to, I say it all the time, like I, you know, I just want to ostrich and put my head down because I get a little bit, um, it, it gets a little, I'm a little too big picture, so I get a little frustrated by it and wish we had a little more of a voice. But, you know, I never regret looking up and looking around and helping. Sometimes I regret looking up and looking around and opening my mouth, but <laughs> that's how it is. <laughs> yeah, you're probably not alone. Okay, so I've got seven minutes of recording time left. Okay. So I'm watching it like a yeah, hawk yeah. this time. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the process of learning as you go? Oh man. Like stuff that you, cause I, I feel like it's such an underrated skill. Like. Oh, especially totally. people people in my generation especially like there's like a right way to do it like you got to get a's in high school and then you go to college and then you get a job and then mm -hmm. i mean it's even starts like way back in like elementary school of, yeah like, totally yeah, stay in line don't hit other kids and i'm not saying hit other kids but like, i understand sure there's like a million rules and like if you follow the rules like there's like this promise that like yeah things will work out great for you if you follow these rules right it's like there's no sharp like no that's not real life there's no right way to do anything it's all arbitrary like treat people well sure like that's it like once you yeah. get past kindergarten you're like mm -hmm. it's free for all yeah yeah i say that a lot you know do the thing that you do and do it well don't hurt anybody else and try to le make it better than it was before you got there and that's literally our mission here but um you know creating a good and safe environment for employees to work in is important i Here's the thing, you know, learning from your mistakes, you have to make them. I mean, there isn't a single smart person that people quote who hasn't said that in some way, shape, or form. You know, I write in pencil a lot because I make a lot of mistakes and I have to erase a lot. That's the truth. Like, I write in pencil. I mean, as a chef, I have to write in a Sharpie, um, so I always have one. But um, <laughs> that's when everything's all said and done and I'm just labeling it, not when it's a work in progress. Um, everything, you, you have to make mistakes. And it's so hard not to get down on yourself, but it's the one thing I've learned is 
is put things in its perspective. And I say it constantly in the scheme of things, the cake that I burnt, cause I burnt the cakes today. Um, it sucked so bad and I was so mad at myself and everybody kind of like steered clear from me. And then I walked back in there and I was like, okay, well, we're gonna turn this into parfait because I can cut the burn parts off. I can layer it with this. I can do this. And then, you know, then we're going to have it and we're going to eat it and it's going to be delicious. You know, sometimes you can salvage a mistake and sometimes a mistake is just, you're screwed. Like you super blew it and not, we have super blown it and you have to prioritize. You have to say, what is this in perspective? And obviously I have an easy one. I'm dying. Like I have a terrible terminal disease. So all the time I can go, well, what is it going to be like? Is it, gonna, is it as bad as a brain tumor? Nope. Moving on, you know, <laughs> but it's not always that easy. You know, you can definitely, you can definitely get really upset. You have, you have to let it go. You have to, and, but you have to remember the mistakes. You can't ignore them and be embarrassed or shame is the worst. Shame is hard. You just have to say, yep, I did it. I screwed it up. Moving on. And own it, for God's sake, own it. Just own it. If you did it, you need to say you did it. Right. Well, I think people who have done it get it. Yeah. There's a lot of people. I mean, I think all of us have worked for a boss who looked to blame, right? We've all been around someone who've, yeah, like the bowl falls on the floor that they were holding and it shatters and they look around and go, well, who did that? You know, it's, that doesn't help anybody. Mm Mm-mm. It doesn't even help the boss. Nope. Yeah, they just creates <laughs> resentment. In terms of getting started, do you have anything in terms of like the attitude to have or attitudes that have worked well for you? Um, listening. You know, the attitude that somebody, there is going to be somebody out there who does it better than me. And it's better for me to listen to what they have to say or watch it or copy it um, than to act like I'm too cool to notice that they can do it better than me. Um, the ego, you've got to be able to put it aside sometimes. Um, most definitely when you're starting out, if someone else is doing it and you think you can do it better, by all means, make sure you know exactly how they're doing it because you can't do anything better if you don't know what it actually is. Yeah. I think that's good. I don't want to dive into a new topic. Yeah. yeah do you th- feel like you covered what you needed to? I, yeah. Yeah. Thank you again for taking the time. I yeah, feel like totally. that's the mistakes thing. You have to like be one to make mistakes. Messing up the recording is yeah. like a great, great <laughs> example of one of those. Like. Uh, okay, like, move on. Yeah, like, I know. mean, there's nothing, and you, you're not going to do it again. No, not, the, <laughs> not this particular mis- <laughs> Not this particular mistake. At least mistake. not to me. <laughs> no. Yeah, I mean, it'll ha- it happens. Yeah, like, it's, and you know. I'm, not, I'm just, yeah, I'm grateful that I have the opportunity to come back and, like, patch over yeah, at least some of it. So, yeah, th- thank you again. Cool, yeah, good. You can find Rachel's business at www.fatmilos.com and I don't do a good job of maintaining that website so always look for us on Fat Milos on Facebook or if you want fried chicken to go on Fridays you can email fried chicken at fatmilos.com we're here at 16147 Southwest Railroad Street in Old Town Sherwood right on the railroad tracks but on the right side of the railroad tracks down the street and around the corner from the Hungry Hero Dessert Company and it's all arranged yeah thank you Thanks again to Rachel for being such a fun person to talk to and for being so understanding about my technological mistakes. If you're in the area, be sure to check out Date Nights at Fat Milo's Family Kitchen on Thursdays. A few weeks ago, I asked for reviews for the podcast and got a much better response than I expected. So thanks to everyone who helped the review on iTunes. I really appreciate that. I think in the last episode, I was joking about uh, there being three whole people that have left a review outside of my parents, sister, and girlfriend, but it turns out neither of my parents even left a review, so it turns out there are like five of you awesome people out in the world, uh, and that's cool, so thank you. Uh, if you haven't left a review yet, I'd still like to hear your feedback or ideas for guests, so uh, leave a review on Apple iTunes, or send me an email at whytrypodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter at whytrypodcast, 
where I post about new episodes, guests, maybe a photo from a business that I visit, and pictures of Penny, my dog. The whole social media scene is still something that I'm trying to figure out, so that's unrolling a little bit slowly. Music for this podcast is by Cambrian Explosion, whose melodic tones can be heard reverberating throughout the solar system, carried by radio waves originating in Portland, Oregon. Mortal flesh bodies like yourselves can find their music at cepdx.bandcamp.com. You can now listen to their album, The Moon, on iTunes and Spotify. So check it out. You can find more episodes of this podcast at nicholaspeel.com or wherever you get your podcast apps. If you haven't yet, go ahead and hit subscribe. Thanks for listening.